By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. I'm Danielle Reed, and this is Moody's Talks, Focus on Finance. In today's episode, from London, my co-host Miles Nelligan will talk to Moody's banking team analyst Louise Villeen in Stockholm about the risks the real estate market in Sweden is posing to the country's banks and why those problems are about to get even bigger. Miles, hi. Hi there, Danielle. So Miles, rapidly rising interest rates in a lot of regions have caused big disruptions in commercial real estate markets in the U.S., Europe, and elsewhere. Naturally, This is a risk to banks, which lend to real estate developers. But in Europe, Sweden stands out in this regard as a market that's even riskier for banks because real estate companies are having difficulties refinancing themselves in the capital markets, right? Yeah, that's exactly right, Danielle. Higher interest rates and spreads mean that refinancing real estate debt has got much harder than it was a couple of years ago. Okay, so Louise will go into more detail on that. But what was the overall takeaway from your conversation with her? How does she think the perils of the property market will affect Swedish banks? Well, the ultimate takeaway is that the impact on banks will be moderate. That's uh, Moody's base case, at least, uh, which forecasts a 5 to 15% fall in property prices and also a gradual deleveraging of the Swedish real estate sector. Uh, now, Louise does also talk about a possible downside scenario, which would be more negative for banks. That's going to be a really interesting discussion, and I'm looking forward to hearing all about that in a few minutes. But first, it's time for Fast Finance, where Moody's analysts give their credit views on topics in the news. Joining me now to talk about Swiss banks is Moody's banking team analyst, Getz Thurm, who's based in Frankfurt. Getz, hi. Hi, Daniel. Getz, UBS's takeover of Credit Suisse this past March put the spotlight on the risks for banks of large outflows of deposits. First of all, how did Swiss banks cope with the decline in system deposits? Well, overall, the Swiss banks, they coped very well because the 15% decline that we saw in overall system deposits in the 12 months until April this year was almost exclusively driven by the deposit run we have seen at Credit Suisse. So in other words, there was no contagion effect and other Swiss banks are broadly stable or even increasing deposit balances, which gave us comfort. Right. but. Still, the events prompted the banking team to take a deeper look at the Swiss banking sector. What was the main takeaway from your review? So the main takeaway was that the Swiss banks will continue to benefit from a very stable domestic deposit base. Domestic deposits declined by less than 3% in the 12 months until April, with the decline mostly reflecting the higher interest rate environment, which provided some incentive for customers to move deposits into interest-earning assets again. Domestic deposits also left Credit Suisse, of course, but they mostly ended up with the Swiss cantonal banks and to some extent the regional and cooperative Raiffeisen banks, i.e. the deposits remain within the system due to safe haven and currency considerations, and we expect that this won't change in the future. The wealth and earnings power of the Swiss population also adds to the stability of the domestic deposit base, of course. Okay, so domestic deposits are pretty stable, it sounds like. And and what about foreign deposits? 
Yeah, well, in terms of foreign deposits, it, it was a completely different picture. While the domestic deposit base, which accounts for about three quarters of total deposits in the Swiss banking system, remained broadly stable, as I mentioned before, the foreign deposits declined by almost 40% during the period. Most of this decline was driven by deposit outflows from Credit Suisse, and these deposits were transferred to other large international money center banks, such as HSBC, for example, rather than to other Swiss banks. We also saw some foreign deposit outflows at the Swiss wealth managers, but this was again driven by the higher interest rate environment, in particular the US dollar, which prompted customers to move their cash from deposits into assets under management. Okay, so so focusing a little more on asset liability management, which is really quite topical right now, what are the strengths of Swiss banks' balance sheet structures? Well, first and foremost, the Swiss banks benefit from very strong solvency profiles. They exhibit strong asset quality metrics, they are very well capitalized, and they generate solid profits. And as you know, large-scale deposit outflows, which can lead to liquidity issues, usually only occur if there are concerns about the solvency of a bank, as was the case with Credit Suisse. But aside from the strong solvency of Swiss banks, they also have sound funding and liquidity profiles. In this respect, it probably makes sense to distinguish between the Swiss wealth managers on the one hand and the Swiss cantona region on the Raiffeisen banks on the other hand, because the two types of banks usually have very different balance sheet structures. Got it. Okay, so let's maybe start with the Swiss wealth managers. Yeah, sure. Um, the Swiss wealth managers are largely deposit funded, and since they cater to high or ultra high net worth individuals, very few of these deposits are actually covered by deposit insurance schemes. So if there were any concerns about the solvency of a bank, most of its deposits would likely be withdrawn within a short period of time. Also, the customer deposits can quickly disappear from the balance sheet if the customers decide to invest their cash deposits into equities, bonds, or any other instruments. To account for this risk of deposit flight, the Swiss wealth managers have very large amounts of cash and other highly liquid, shorter dated assets on their balance sheets. And most of the loans they have on their typically small loan books can also be liquidated quickly. And finally, the wealth managers could afford to liquidate their longer dated assets in their investment portfolio, even if these carry unrealized losses, because these potential losses are already deducted from the bank's capital ratios in contrast to what we have seen in the US regional banks. So overall, um, we are quite comfortable with the asset liability management of the Swiss wealth managers. Yeah, got it. Thanks for that. It sounds like the Swiss wealth managers are pretty well defended against deposit flight risk. And what about the second banking group, the Cantonal, Regional and Raiffeisen banks? Well, these banks mostly operate universal banking models with large retail operations and some corporate lending and ancillary operations. These banks are also largely deposit funded, but since most of the deposits are retail deposits, a much higher share is protected by deposit insurance than what we see at the wealth managers. Plus, the deposits placed with the Swiss cantonal banks are usually guaranteed by the respective Swiss cantons, which also reduces the risk of deposit outflows in a crisis scenario. And because of the lower deposit flight risk, the second banking group also carries a lower share of liquid assets on their balance sheets than the wealth managers. And they, of course, use the deposits to extend long-term liquid loans to their customer base, which are mostly residential mortgage loans. But these residential mortgage loans can also be used as collateral to generate additional liquidity via the dedicated covered bond issuance vehicles in Switzerland or via the Swiss Central Bank in a crisis scenario. So we, we are generally also comfortable with the asset liability management at the Cantonal, Regional and Raiffeisen Banks. Okay, and looking ahead, will there be any regulatory changes in Switzerland following the events at Credit Suisse? 
Yeah, the Swiss regulator will certainly reassess the liquidity requirements for Swiss banks, in particular for the systemically relevant banking groups. Um, and in, in addition, several measures such as the additional liquidity assistance provided by the central bank to Credit Suisse that were implemented under emergency law to facilitate the sale of Credit Suisse to UBS are planned to be transposed into ordinary law. Overall, we think that this should add to the stability of the Swiss banking system and to the predictability of the Swiss authorities' actions in a crisis scenario. Gets, thank you so much. And now joining us from Tokyo is Tetsuya Yamamoto, here to talk about how the Bank of Japan is contending with an inflationary environment and what that means for Japanese banks. Hi, Tetsuya. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Daniel. Glad to join. Tetsuya, something that hasn't been seen for a while has come to Japan in the last year or so, and that is inflation above the Bank of Japan's 2% target. Can you give listeners a quick sense of where the inflation rate is now compared to where it's been for the last five or 10 years? Sure, Daniel. The inflation rate was well below 2% for the last five years and even longer than that. It didn't start rising until 2022, but since then, it's gone up sharply. Japan's core CPI rose 3.3% in June above the target rate for the 15th straight month. Wow, so rates are rising in Japan in keeping, I guess, with the global trend. Now, most central banks are tightening monetary policy, meaning they're raising key interest rates. Has the Bank of Japan or BOJ followed suit? Not yet. The BOJ has held its short-term target interest rate at minus 0.1%, so just below 0% since 2016 to combat deflation. In July 2023, the BOJ did loosen its yield curve control policy to enhance the policy's sustainability under the current framework. But now, inflation has taken hold, and our report looks at what would happen if the BOJ were to change its monetary policy and raise that target rate. Got it. So what's your base case and what do you think the major effects would be? In our baseline scenario, where inflation stays above 2% through the end of 2023, we expect the BOJ to gradually exit the yield curve control policy. In this scenario, the central bank would keep its short-term policy rate unchanged at minus 0.1% in 2023 and raise it to 0% in 2024. The yield on 10-year Japanese government bonds, or JGBs, would increase to about 1.5% by the end of 2024, from about 0.4% at the end of June 2023. And what would that mean for mark-to-market losses on bonds at Japanese banks? How big a risk is that for banks? In a baseline scenario, where the yield on 10-year JGBs rises another 100 basis points by the end of 2024, we estimate mark-to-market losses from domestic bonds would equal a manageable 2% to 5% of tangible common equity for the three megabank groups. Mark-to-market losses would be higher for regional banks, which hold bonds with longer maturities than the megabanks, 
For most banks outside of the mega banks, the mark-to-market losses would be above 10% of tangible common equity. The mark-to-market losses would increase more if the benchmark yield jumps 150 basis points by the end of 2024 in an adverse scenario and would still be greater for regional banks than the megabanks. I see. What does that mean in terms of banks' liquidity? The good news is Japanese banks have a lot of liquidity. They are very unlikely to have to sell their bonds at losses because they have a lot of liquidity in the form of retail deposits. In addition, unlike foreign bonds, yields on domestic bonds will remain higher than ultra-low costs for deposits, so return on domestic bonds will remain positive. Therefore, banks are unlikely to sell their domestic bonds at losses, even if mark-to-market losses on domestic bonds will increase. So retail deposits really is key, I guess. I mean, in recent memory, we've seen corporate deposits flee a bank or two pretty quickly, for example, in the U.S. So right. I'm specifically talking about retail deposits, which are pretty sticky in general. About half of domestic deposits, which in aggregate account for more than 80% of banks' funding, are from retail customers for the three megabanks, and the proportion is even larger at 65% to 70% for most regional banks. And banks also have large holdings of liquid assets with cash and JGB holdings, generally amounting to more than 30% to 40% of their total deposits. Right. Okay, so in summary, as you said, banks are unlikely to have to sell their bonds at a loss or at all, really. But what about the effect on the economy if the Bank of Japan starts to raise rates? Wouldn't that cause loan defaults to rise? It's pretty clear that loan defaults would go up in a rising rate environment. But we expect the Bank of Japan, if and when it does start to raise target interest rates, to move very gradually. So the effect should be limited and banks' non-performing loan ratios should stay fairly low. Also, on the positive side, banks' net interest margins would improve in a higher interest rate environment. Banks will also be able to reinvest maturing JGBs into higher yielding JGBs. Tetsuya, thank you very much for your insights. And now my co-host Miles Nelligan has returned to talk to Moody's banking team analyst Louise Bellin about Swedish banks' real estate exposure. Thanks very much, Danielle. And uh, Louise, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Happy to be here, Miles. So Louise, uh, Danielle and I were uh, talking a little bit about this at the start of the show. Um, But perhaps you could recap for our listeners, um, why exactly is real estate a risk for Swedish banks in particular, more than for banks in other European countries? So real estate companies across Europe need to adjust their balance sheets to cope with the much higher interest rates. And this means that many companies have to deleverage, sometimes significantly, to adjust to the higher funding costs. The Swedish real estate companies need to deleverage as well, but in addition to that, they are facing significant challenges in refinancing themselves on the capital markets. 
Both interest rates and spreads have increased steeply, making it very difficult for most to refinance maturing bonds. And the refining needs are sizable. About 100 billion Swedish krona, or 8.5 billion euros, annually. Well, that certainly explains why real estate stands out as a risk. Um, now, Swedish banks already have sizable exposure to this sector, uh, but according to, to your recent research, uh, they're actually likely to increase it over the next three years, which sounds slightly counterintuitive. Uh, could you explain uh, why that is exactly? You're right, Miles. Lending to real estate companies is a very sizable part of the Swedish bank's lending portfolio. And it accounted for about 18% of total lending at the end of 2022. And this is European Banking Authority data. That is among the highest in the EU, and it is well above the EU average of 5% of total lending. The reason why it will increase even further is that many of these real estate companies that struggle to refinance their bonds on the capital markets need and have already started to return to the banks. So how do you foresee this playing out, the the deleveraging alongside the, the replacement of maturing debt? So our base case is that the deleveraging and partial replacement of bond funding will be gradual. There will be some financial stress, of course, but the sector as a whole will achieve a soft landing with a moderate impact on the banks. However, there is a risk that the adjustment could be more painful. Some companies could be forced into distressed asset sales, and if that were to happen, lower valuations could spread across the sector. It is also possible that interest rates will rise further and stay higher for longer than what would actually be sustainable for many real estate companies. Under this more negative downside scenario, the effects on the Swedish banks would also be felt. So, so Louise, to follow up on that thought, how big could, uh, could banks' credit losses actually get? Maybe just to reiterate first that we do believe that the ultimate impact on the banking sector will be moderate. The credit quality of the bank's real estate portfolios remains strong, with problem loans of about 0.2% of gross loans, and that is very low. This reflects banks' conservative underwriting, and in addition, this lending is backed by a strong collateral. Overall, loan-to-value ratios is around 50%. Our base case scenario involves a 5 to 15% fall in property prices and assumes a gradual deleveraging by these companies. In our downside scenario, we assume a 20 to 40% property price decline in Sweden, and that is a stronger fall than we assume in our downside scenario elsewhere. That scenario would involve broader stresses on the Swedish economy and a more negative impact on the banking sector. However, loan losses would still be limited by the conservative underwriting. And what kind of things would need to happen to trigger the downside scenario and and, and how would banks be affected? So if several companies were forced into distressed asset sales at large discounts, we could see valuation fall across the real estate sector. And this could lead to deeper financial distress. If inflation does not abate quickly enough, the central bank could raise rates further than it currently expects and leave the rates higher for longer, putting pressure on both real estate companies and Swedish households that are also highly leveraged. 
Right. Louise, just to step back from the most difficult outcome here and wind things up on maybe a more positive note, I'm going to ask about what factors could protect banks from the kind of real estate stress that you're describing. There are quite a few factors, actually, Danielle. So banks in Sweden learned their lessons from the financial crisis in the early 1990s when they took significant losses on the real estate exposure. And since then, they have tightened their underwriting standards significantly and they have a clear focus on cash flows and stress tests. Lending to this sector is backed by collateral and lending above 60% loan to value is actually very limited. And this means that banks would be broadly resilient even to a 40% fall in property prices, which is the upper part of the range in our downside scenario. The banks also have strong capital positions and good profitability. And 2023 is likely to be a record year when it comes to profitability. And in addition, most of these banks have taken some precautionary loan loss reserves. So we do think that these buffers are sufficient for banks to absorb an important deterioration in real estate companies' creditworthiness. Got it. Louise and Miles, thank you so much for your insightful discussion. And thanks also very much again to Getz and Tetsuya. And a big thank you, as always, to our listeners for tuning in. To dive deeper into any of the topics covered in today's podcast, you can follow the links to the show notes for the episode at moody's.com slash podcasts. And if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast streaming platform, please remember to follow or subscribe. We'll be on break for the rest of August, but please join us again starting in early September for future episodes of Focus on Finance. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.